0: I think the church overall is looking for some kind of leadership, that which has come out of worldwide. Uh, they don't really grasp, most of them, what is to come, but I think most of them recognize that there, at some point in time there will be uh, a couple of witnesses show up. We know from Isaiah 40 through 44 that it will be more than two, that we are all witnesses, that God is God, and Christ is Christ. And we have to look upon ourselves as His witnesses, that He is God, so that we are a good witness. (laughs) So there is a certain uh, responsibility upon us all to be proper witnesses. But everybody, overall, I think, wonders. Some think they know I've met, I don't know, probably several dozen of the two witnesses just in my life. Uh, They show up here and there. uh, And in fact, I remember one in Southern California back in the early 70s who had planted three or four peach trees and a couple of apricot and pear trees and maybe some apple trees and proclaimed that he was Moses. And uh, they were... The the church would be gathered out to Joshua Tree National Monument in that area uh, where he would deliver them. And I don't know how he was going to do it with a dozen trees, but uh, that was his view. Uh, I think he'd been in the desert sun a little too long, perhaps. Uh, I remember Ted Armstrong telling not only the two witnesses show up, but somebody marched into Ted's office one day and said, I am Jesus. And he said, no, you're not, get out. <laughs> so, there have been a lot of false starts, okay, and uh, somewhere along the line, true leadership has to show up. So, let's address today some scriptures about uh, leadership, how it will come about, and when it will happen, uh, because they're all questions I think we need answered, and I do believe that This is shortly to happen. shouldn't be very long now. Uh, And do we know what we're looking for and will we recognize it when we see it? And will the church recognize it? Overall, the the overall church recognize it when it happens. And you know what? The difficult part of that is that 90% of the church will not recognize it when it shows up. Now that's pathetic. Something that We all looked to over the years, and I think most everybody does, but God says when He sends the leadership and starts doing His end-time work, 90% of the church will reject it. And He will send or stir a 10% remnant to come and finish His work, and that they will be perfected. Now, if 9 out of 10 in the church will reject what God does, Should we not be aware and alert and looking for and know what to look for uh, since 90% will reject? So this perhaps is a fairly timely thing to talk about today. Let's go first of all to Acts 3. I I went here uh, to review the happenings at Pentecost in my own mind as it's drawing near. And uh, I thought, well, something to do with Pentecost would be worthwhile today. Uh, And then some thoughts began to come to mind that I I think perhaps God inspired me to think, uh, because we might need this message now. But miracles had been happening, starting in Acts 2, verse 1, where they had been waiting for Pentecost to come. And when they were gathered, you know the story of the cloven tongues of fire and the speaking in uh, tongues and all of that that began to occur, along with healings and uh, uh, conversions by the thousands. So there were some pretty important events that began to occur there as Christ established the New Testament church through the apostles. And I won't go back through all of that right at the moment, but Peter talked about it and how they had converted, or people had been converted and followed the apostles' doctrine and so on. But I want to get on into chapter three, where uh, the lame man was healed, and then people looked to Peter and John and they said, "No." In verse twelve, it wasn't our power or holiness that's made this man walk. Uh, Christ had appointed them as apostles and as a ministry, but they recognized full well that all they could do was anoint, or even as Christ did sometimes speak, and this was a very dramatic manifestation during that period of time where even their shadow passing over people would heal them, just people out in the world, unconverted people apparently, uh, as a sign that God was God. Now we're going to see a little more about that as we go along. But that was what was happening in that context. Uh, then verse 17, he says, And now, brethren, I would that through ignorance you did, you did the things that you did, where they'd kill the prophets and killed Christ and so on. Uh, verse 18, But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he has so fulfilled. Then he has an admonition and an instruction here. Repent you therefore and be changed or converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the eternal. Now you might have called, had you been standing there, those dramatic events that occurred on Pentecost to be a time of refreshing, a time of restoration. Uh, a time where God began to intervene and do marvelous things. And indeed, you would have been right. Uh, Peter even said that this is like Joel 2 with all these things that are happening that God said would happen at the end of the age. But by this time, shortly thereafter, he's telling them to repent because the times of refreshing are still ahead. Perhaps he... Partially understood Joel, and maybe as he thought about it, he realized that what had been occurring was not the end-all, be-all. I mean, the apostles expected Christ to return right away, right? So they expected a restitution very quickly in the presence of the Eternal. But they were to learn later on in life that He wasn't coming in their lifetime, and that his presence was still roughly 2,000 years away. And he shall send Emmanuel, which before was preached to you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. So here he's stating that Christ would go back to his Father in heaven and remain there until the time of restoration. Now let's understand... Uh, I say restoration, it says restitution. Restoration and restitution are synonyms. And we know in Malachi 4, it talks about how there will be an Elijah to come to restore all things before Christ returns. So, uh, the end time prophecies, and we'll tie these together, indicate a time of restoration or a time of refreshing or restitution, as Peter uses both those words here, just prior to the time Christ comes. (coughs) (coughs) Now, of course, everything will not be restored prior to Christ's return. Uh, There will be, I believe, according to Isaiah 55 and other places, Edenic conditions that will come back for those who have been preserved and protected. But the restoration of the whole earth and of everything will not occur until Christ himself has returned. Uh, As I've said before, I think the things that are restored before he returns are a small microcosm or an example of in a small area of Zion and Jerusalem of what shall be worldwide. So he's going to give a preview. In a movie, you'd call it a trailer. Uh, This is what is about to happen. This is what you're going to see, and here's an example of it is what Christ is going to do before he comes back to rule in power. And he even says he'll come dwell with that remnant and its leadership in Zion there in Zechariah 2. So he will return, not in power and glory like he will at the first resurrection, but he will return in a lesser role and be there to rule over and oversee the restoration that is done to show the world what is to come. God does not do anything unless He reveals it through His servants, the prophets, remember. So He will not destroy everything, and He will not restore everything unless He shows ahead of time what will be and how it will be, because that's according to His Word. We need to understand that, and it helps us understand what he will be doing. And I'd say 99.9999 or whatever percent of the church today is ignorant of all this. They still have no clue what is just ahead uh, for the witness and the work that has to be done. So Christ would go back until the time of restitution was near. Now, when Paul, when Peter was quoting Joel 2, he was quoting events that would lead up to the day of the Lord and the darkening of the sun and the moon and so on. Uh, so, Joel obviously was talking about the end of the age. So, what Peter saw was a uh, a forerunner, a smaller example, a lesser type of what will come at the end. Because... Those things will be done again at the end, just before the day of the Lord, when uh, young and old will have dreams and visions, and God will pour out His Spirit, and He will gather His remnant, and any who call on the name of the Lord. So some in the eleventh hour will also be called. I think I've kind of overlooked that in the past, but that's very clear there in verse 32 of Joel 2. I keep coming back to that, but... uh it struck me when I noticed that. And, of course, you see that in the uh, the story of the, the king and his son's marriage, that there'd be some kicked out and some come in at the eleventh hour at the last moment. So it fits with that as well. But let's go on down. Christ would be there, uh, and all these things that the prophets have spoken about will happen, And verse 22 is interesting. For Moses truly said to the fathers, A prophet shall the eternal your God raise up unto you of your brethren like to me. Him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say to you. Now God is going to raise up someone in the likeness of Moses. And he's called that prophet several places. Uh, and it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet, as I just said, shall be destroyed from among the people. So this is pretty serious business. We don't listen to whom God sins will be destroyed. Now, I think it, it becomes very, very clear that Moses was a, a type of Christ. And that prophet, as stated here, ultimately has to be Christ. He is the greatest prophet of all. And Moses was only a type of Christ, but he was indeed a type of Christ. Was he not the one God used to actually give the law? It was given to Moses, and then Moses became, in that sense, the lawgiver or the one who brought it and delivered it. So, he is a direct type in that sense. Uh, there was another. There was another type I wanted to use there. Well, maybe it'll come back to me in a minute. But let's go back to. Well, let's first of all, before we go there, let's go to uh, John one. John one. Here he starts talking about Christ, how the Word was in the beginning, and Christ was the Word. But down here, and let's pick it up about verse 21. Uh, Verse 19, actually. This is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? John the Baptist was out preaching. He was a forerunner of Christ, and in that sense, he was a type of Christ, because he was the one who was there to do some things that Christ would later do. In other words, he was baptizing, he was teaching the Old Testament, he was preaching about God and about the coming of Christ, and baptizing, though not giving the Spirit. So, that's the context of what was there. He was the preparation, the forerunner, as a type of the true Christ who was come. Let's see. It says in verse 17, let's back up. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came by Christ Emmanuel. Emmanuel. So, Moses was used to bring the law, as I said, and as we read there in Acts, and it's reiterated here. Now, going on down, uh, they ask him, Who are you? Verse 20, And he confessed, and denied not. But he confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, they wondered if he was the Christ to come. These guys were sent out to ask. And he says, No, that's not me. they asked him then, Who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Now, he was, and Christ will confirm that later on in a scripture that we'll go to. He was uh, a type of Elijah, and, and uh, the Elijah to come at the end is also a type of Christ, just as Moses is. Let's understand, the Joshua of Jeremiah 3 is the high priest, and Christ, according to the book of Hebrews and other places, is the ultimate high priest and mediator between us and God. So there is a type there of the Christ, the true Christ to come, and Moses is the same. Uh, He was a type of the lawgiver. And so when he says, Are you Elijah? He said, No. No. But in fact, that was his opinion, but the truth was, he was, as that will come out. Are you that prophet? Now, what's that referring to? We already saw that prophet would be Christ, as in typology, was Moses. Are you that prophet? And... We'll go back to a moment where that word is used in particular. And he answered, no, I am not. Now, I know of at least one of the old ministers of of Old Worldwide Church of God who believes he is that prophet spoken of here, and perhaps others as well. So he answered, no, I'm not Christ, I'm not Elijah, and I'm not that prophet. Then said they to him, Who are you? If you're not those, then who are you? That we may give an answer to them that sent us, What do you say of yourself? Just who do you think you are? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Eternal, as said the prophet Isaiah. So he refers back to Isaiah 40. Which is an end time prophecy. Herbert Armstrong's administration went up through Isaiah 39, and a new work starts there in Isaiah 40, where there is one that will be crying as a voice in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. And this John the Baptist recognized that, and he knew what he was to say and to preach, because Isaiah 40 says to say that all men are grass, and they will wither as the grass. And also to say that uh, Christ would be returning, but he would be protecting his people in Zion and Jerusalem. If you go through Isaiah 40 and 41 and so on, it talks about planting seven trees in the wilderness in Isaiah 41. So, this was a preparation before the first uh, coming of Christ as a human being. I've gone over that before. He came many times in the Old Testament. Uh, and we call it the first coming and the second coming, but he's been here many, many times. And he's coming again. He came to Paul and talked to him in the desert. and There are quite a few times Christ has come. He even told ancient Israel, dig a hole and bury that which comes forth from you because I may be walking through the camp and I don't want to step in it. So he came to the earth fairly commonly. So when we say first and second coming, We're speaking of a narrow context of when he came as a baby and when he comes back in glory. But there have been many other comings and there will be some more. And the reason I emphasize that is because he says there in Zechariah that he will come and dwell with us. And that's why he says they will call him Emmanuel. Because that means God with us, not just God is salvation, which Jesus means. Somebody called me on that recently. Well, why do you use Emmanuel? It says, Jesus Christ is the only name whereby men may be saved. That's true. He is salvation. That's what Jesus or Joshua or Yeshua or however you want to pronounce it means. But God with us being salvation is an even closer relationship. And that's why I've been dealing more recently with how close a relationship God wants us to have with Him. He's going to come and dwell with us. And He said, you call in Jesus, and we did for years. And that was fine, no problem. I've seen demons come out. I've seen dramatic healings in Jesus' name. And that was before I knew to use Yahshua or Yahshua or however people want to say it. I just said plain old Jesus. And I saw people healed and demons come out. So, I don't have any problem with English translation. You can speak in tongues and try to find ancient Hebrew if you want to, but it isn't necessary, okay? It isn't necessary. But he says, in the end, they will call him Emmanuel, And we're here at the end. And we do believe that he is coming to dwell with us. And therefore, I think it is appropriate that we use it. Same individual. They'll be saved in the name of Emmanuel. Or Jesus. Whichever you want to use. They're both valid names for the same God being. Just as there are many titles for God that we can use. He's our healer. He's our sustainer. He's our father. He's, you know, we go on and on. Let's not go too far into that because it isn't the topic of the day. But it just came to mind because I use that all the time. Anyway... Uh, He said he was the voice crying in the wilderness, preparing for Christ. Well, that has to be done again. John the Baptist was preparing for Christ to come as the Savior uh, and the sacrifice for us. And it was just a day later that Christ showed up to be baptized. So he and John the Baptist were only six months apart in age. But Isaiah 40, in its final fulfillment is a preparation for Christ's second coming in glory is what it is a uh, sign of. And you go all through the prophecies, you can see, that that is indeed the case. So, uh, let's go on then to John 6 about that prophet. John 6, and here I want uh, about verse 14, I think it is. Well, let's start in 13. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with fragments from this miracle that had been done. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. So they knew the scripture about Moses saying that a prophet would come like him. And they said, This must be him. And, of course, they wanted to kill him. <laughs> Isn't that a strange thing? They'll say, you must be that prophet that Moses spoke of that we were to obey. Now we're going to kill you. Those people were So, What can you say? Those were the religious leaders of the day. Anyway, uh, let's go on back and read what... Moses said there in Deuteronomy 18 because he was inspired of God. Now he's talking about various things here, but down in verse 15, he says the eternal your God will raise up to you a prophet from the midst of you of your brethren like me. So he says out of your people, your brethren, in the future, there will be another prophet like me, like Moses. To him shall you hearken, according to all that you desire of the eternal your God in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the eternal my God, neither let me see this great fire anymore, that I die not. So he reminds them of how scared they were when they saw Mount Sinai erupt. And the Eternal said to me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto you, and will put my words in his mouth. Now, Christ is that ultimate prophet. But here is Christ himself saying that he will put words in the mouth of that prophet that is being discussed here. So, the Moses, the end-time Moses, is a type of Christ, and Christ will be putting his words into that Moses' mouth. So, we can argue, if we want, semantics about whether the only prophet is Christ, who is that prophet, or whether that prophet not only represents Christ, but also represents a forerunner and a type of Christ who was the lawgiver. And I think this proves that right here because when it talks about the Lord here in the Old Testament, it's Melchizedek, it's Christ. And he says, I will put my words in his mouth. So he says, it's going to be one of your brethren, like Moses, a human being, and Christ himself will put his words in that person's mouth. So we're looking here at the end time for some who will come as a lawgiver as a type of Christ, and that God will put his words in that man's mouth, and that we are to hearken to what he has to say. Okay? This is important to know, because 90% of the church, again, will reject what that man has to say, as Israel has always done. So we need to be very, very aware and alert and pay attention And we better pay attention to whatever the leadership that does appear has to say, based on what we just read, I would say. You know, your opinion or mine won't matter. It won't matter in the least what your opinion is. Ninety percent of the church will have a different opinion. That's written in stone. It's written in the Word of God, which is just like rock. So it's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of Scripture. And it's a matter of what God puts in those, or that, particularly here, Moses' mouth, to speak to us. We better pay attention, because God is not going to send any leader of the church at the end time that is full of false doctrine. That just won't happen. can't happen. If he says, I'll put my words in his mouth, and he'll speak what I once said, then that's what's going to happen. And it's not going to be this Moses' opinion. It's going to be what God has revealed to him, and he will speak the truth. God is not going to give us a mixture of truth and error. Now, so far in the experience of the end-time church, we've had a mixture of truth and error all the way through from the time Herbert Armstrong began to be converted in 1926 to today. (laughs) A lot of opinions, a lot of different doctrines, a lot of people following different things. But God is going to educate the remnant with truth. Your word is truth. Our opinions are not truth. God's word is truth. So anything that we believe had better be found in the word of God. I trust this book. I do not believe for one moment that God created this beautiful orb and restored it to great beauty and harmony and put us on it and didn't leave us instruction. We had to have an instruction book. And it isn't the Book of Mormon. That isn't what God left. It got written by... Forty authors over a period of nearly a thousand years. This is the book that was. And I have studied it now for a lot of years, and I don't find any contradictions in it, except that unless there might be a mistranslation here or, some here or there, or I don't understand something. But it all fits together. Now, you can't have that many people writing different parts of something that don't even, most of them, know each other and have it all fit together perfectly thousands of years later. That is not the work of men. That's the work of a divine hand and mind that could cause that kind of inspiration. Did God die after that? Now, the word's already here. Can He inspire an end-time leadership to understand this Word. I think he can. If he get inspired in the first place, he can inspire somebody to read it and understand it. And that has to happen. But there are a lot of ins and outs to this that we got to get to, and I better hurry. Either that or it will go into next week. Now, let's pick up here... Uh I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass, verse 19, that whosoever will not hearken to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. He says, if you don't listen to the one I'm going to send, you're in deep trouble. Because those words will be what I judge you by. I'll require it of you. But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, (coughs) or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. I'm going to send one in the spirit of Moses. And you better listen to him. But there will be others that show up, and they're going to be preaching false things. Remember Hananiah there who told uh, the Jews, oh, it's just going to be a short captivity, don't build homes. And Jeremiah says, no, it's going to be a long captivity, build homes. And then Hananiah died. So it'll be the same. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Eternal has not spoken? How are we going to know? The church will ask that. Ninety percent will come up with the wrong answer. Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Eternal... If the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is, the thing which the eternal has not spoken, but the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. So, he says you've got to base it on two things here. A, if he said something will happen, does it happen? B, does it fit the word of God? If it doesn't fit the word of God... It isn't something that God has spoken. So Hananiah brought a message that God hadn't delivered him. But Jeremiah had been delivered a message from God, and it happened the way Jeremiah said it would happen, not the way Hananiah did. Now, what was Elijah's job? Because the Moses and the Elijah types, we'll see, go together. But one of Elijah's primary jobs was what? to discredit the prophets of Baal. To let the people know that what they were being told was not right. Now, is what most of the ministry of Worldwide Church of God telling the people today that which is right? No. They're still telling them they're Philadelphians and they're going to go to Petra. Most of them. And that everything's going to be hunky-dory and be A-OK. okay is that what all these prophecies say? No, these prophecies say 90% of you are going to the tribulation. And you're not going to Petra because there's nowhere in the Bible that you find that. If you go anywhere, it's going to be Zion. That's the place of refuge. That's the place mentioned all through the Bible is Zion. Not Petra. You won't even find that in the Bible. You'll find the Hebrew or Greek word for rock, but you won't find any it mentioned as a place of safety like we originally thought, and I could go on and on about what the ministry is teaching the people today, and that's why Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 and Malachi 1 and 2 are there, is because the ministry of the church of God has gone off the track and are not preaching what this book says will happen, and they're leading the people astray. And when the members of the church have looked, pointed at those scriptures and says, this is the ministry of the church, they were right. The ministers of the church didn't like it. I didn't like it. Why? Because I was part of it. Now, I'm trying to repent of it and preach you out of here what it says, not what I heard 50, 60 years ago. Now, some of what I heard 50, 60 years ago was indeed correct. So I'm not not repudiating Herbert Armstrong. Don't get me wrong. He was a man of God who was used of God very powerfully, and I do believe that. But anyway, you have to try it. You have to check it in the Word of God, and then you have to wait and see if it comes to pass. Those are keys that are important for us to remember. Now... Let's go to uh, Matthew 17, the story of the uh, Transfiguration, because Christ has something more here to say about leadership at the end times. Now, understand that even John the Baptist himself, who was the forerunner of the first coming of Christ, did not restore all things by any means, did he? Uh, He baptized in water only without the Holy Spirit. He did not preach the uh, magnification of the law, which Christ did in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, He didn't restore doctrine. There were a lot of things that John the Baptist did not do. He did cry aloud in the wilderness that Christ is coming. I mean, he fulfilled... Uh, a great part of Isaiah 40 and 41 and so on, but he did not do it in the end-time context of where those scriptures in Isaiah 41, 2, 3, 4, 5, and through the 50s go, because they're prophecies of the end time. So, he was a type of the fulfillment of those. (coughs) And he restored sufficient for Christ's first coming Because Christ did not himself restore all things when he first came. And he was even asked, did you come to restore everything? And he said, no, not now. So even Christ himself didn't restore all things. The time of the final restitution is still ahead of us. Or even a physical type to come and then that which comes when Christ does return. But anyway, getting to 17 then to back some of this up. He took Peter, James, and John uh, to a high mountain and was transfigured. Uh, He didn't appear as he had five minutes ago to them as just a human being. His face shone and his raiment was white as the light. And there appeared to uh, to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So here were Moses and Elijah communicating with Christ in this vision. And it was that, because it says later, tell this vision of no man. Then said Peter uh, to Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? Uh, Or it is good for us to be here. If you will, let us make here three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So he had instructed them enough by then that they understood that the Feast of Tabernacles represented the millennium, and that therefore they needed booths, if this was indeed the millennium or a picture of of what the Feast of Tabernacles pictures. "...and while he spoke, behold, a bright cloud came over them, and a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear you, him." Now, part of the message was here that Moses and Elijah were important, the Moses and Elijah to come will be important, But Christ is the most important. Hear Him. Because He even has told us that the words that the Moses to come would utter would be from Him. So He's ultimately the one we listen to. But He said, I will speak through those whom I send. He did through the mouth of the prophets of old. He did through the apostles. When they heard this, they fell on their face and were scared spitless. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Get up, don't be afraid. And when they lifted their eyes, he was the only one there. Moses and Elijah in the vision had gone away. So as they came down, uh, Christ said, Don't tell this to any man until I have been risen from the dead. In other words, for right now, this is a message to you only. This is a message to the ministry. It's a message you need to get, he says. But don't share it with anybody yet. Not until all these events that have to do with me are finished. And they ask him, saying, What then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? He says, Well, we just saw a vision of Elijah. And you're telling us not to tell this. But the scribes are already telling us there's an Elijah to come. So how do you explain this to us? What's going on here? They they were confused. And Emmanuel answered and said to them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. Referring to Malachi 4.4. But I say to you, the Elijah is already come, and they knew him not, but have done to him whatever they desired. Likewise also shall the Son of Man suffer of them. So he says, there is an Elijah to come, But I tell you, there's already been one. And they killed him, just like they're going to kill me. So he's giving them a lesson here. That the original Elijah did what he did against the prophets of Baal, even raised the dead. And this John the Baptist came and preached and showed that I was coming, he says. But he's not the last, and he didn't restore all things. And he didn't raise the dead. He didn't do a lot of things the original Elijah did, did he? In fact, he himself was killed, as will the end time when uh, both of the prophets will die in Jerusalem the day, three and a half days before Christ returns. So, he says there's one to come still to restore all things. And a great deal has been lost, hasn't it? Hadn't most of the truth of God been lost? Christ preached it very clearly. And then, after the apostles died, the church disappeared for 1,900 years. And Herbert Armstrong was right when he says the true gospel has not been preached in full in 1,900 years. Now, there had been bits and pieces and snippets of it. Uh, There were people who kept the Sabbath. There were people who kept the feasts. Uh, Rhode Island, some of the colonies, uh, they did that uh, for a little while after they arrived. And then Christmas and Easter took over, which had been illegal at first. So those who came understood a certain amount of the truth of God, but not very much of it. But Herbert Armstrong was revealed much more of it, and he was a type of Elijah. He was more a type of Zerubbabel, I think but some of both there, because he did restore quite a bit. But there was a whole lot more that still hadn't been restored that still is being, or has been, or shall be, if we'll put it that way. So, uh, let's go on then to Malachi 4, which I just quoted, but I want to go back and read it now, to show you this is an, totally an end-time context. And Malachi 1 and 2 about the ministry wasn't about Old Testament ministers or prophets. It's about the church here at the end. Now, he says in chapter 3 that Christ will come suddenly to his temple, to the church. So he's coming to the church first. says he'll dwell with it there in Zechariah 2, right? (coughs) But then in chapter 4, it's, it moves forward. The day comes that shall burn as an oven and the proud and everybody will be burned up. But those that fear uh, Christ's name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. So he's talking about ultimately uh, our glorification and the death, eternally of the wicked, and how they will be ashes under the feet of the righteous. So this is an end time prophecy of what will occur from the time just before and when Christ returns. He says here, there will be souls, ashes under your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the eternal of hosts. So he's referring forward to the end time. And then he says in that end-time context, remember you the law of Moses, my servant, (coughs) which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. So the reference here is back to Sinai when Moses delivered the law, right? He was a type of Christ. Christ gave him directly the law. And Moses came down and read it to the people off the stones. So, he's saying, I want you to remember what happened there in an end-time context. We're not just talking ancient history here. We're talking about when all these events that will lead to your glorification and the wicked being under your feet will happen. And that's a time to remember what Moses did. Because, in fact, he says, I will send another Moses from your brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, Christ putting his words in his mouth, just like he put them in Moses' mouth and wrote them on the stone. He's going to do it in the same way. So this is an end-time prophecy about a Moses who will appear from among our brethren. So it'll, be, it'll actually be a converted church member. Wow. I've heard people say it wouldn't be. I don't know who they think it was. Billy Graham's son or the Pope or whoever. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see what they come up with, in other words. the 90% won't believe the true one again. So this will be ultimately for all Israel with the statutes and judgments, which is what Moses will be talking about. The end-time Moses will be talking about the coming kingdom of God, when the laws and the statutes of God will be reenacted all over the earth through the millennium. So it's an end-time man talking about what is about to happen. And he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the eternal. So right in the context of the day of the Lord being just ahead in a fearful time, he's going to send an Elijah the prophet And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So, he is to come just before Christ's return, shortly before, and turn the heart. And I've said that's on three levels. We understood it decades ago as just, we're going to make the daddies and the the sons like each other better through Y-O-U. That was our interpretation. That's the way it came down. And that didn't work out too good, did it? Actually, it pulled it away from the parents and to the coaches and the administrators of YOU, for the most part. It was not what it was cracked up to be and didn't fulfill what we thought. But it's on three levels. The children of God to our Father in Heaven obviously is the highest and most precious form of that. If we don't turn to our Father in Heaven then he's going to come and smite the earth with the ultimate curse. So this is bigger than just daddies and their little kids. This has to do with eternal life. And then, of course, we're instructed in uh, Isaiah 51, I believe it is, to look to Abraham and to Sarah, the hole from which we were digged. We're to look back to the prophets of old, even as... Paul reminds us of that in Hebrews 11, where he did just that. He said, you want to see what faith is all about? (laughs) Look at your fathers from the past. And then starts naming a bunch of them there in Hebrews 11. So that is the second most important level that we have to do. You and I have to look back to all those people that Paul named in Hebrews 11 and others that he didn't have time to, to include in the letter. And we're to learn from them. Learn the good things they did and don't repeat their mistakes. So that is a huge education process for the church. Just understand this. Did you ever hear that preached? I never did. I heard all evangelists. I've been listening to everybody since 1953. And all I ever heard was the kiddies and their daddies have to sit on the lap. That's all I ever heard. No. It's bigger than that. That's the third level. And just as marriage is a mystery, a great mystery of husband and wife, and their marriage is supposed to be a type of Christ, and it's a real shabby one with us, is it not? But we're there to learn from it, in any case. Now, a marriage is a type of Christ, and some of us have trouble, based on our experience in marriage, grasping how that is a true depiction of Christ and His bride, don't we? Because we've been less than perfect. <laughs> but don't stop there. Don't stop there at all. Each of us is a type of Christ, are we not? I've preached this before, but we need to get, we need to get it. You are a once you are baptized and become a representative of Christ. He used the word ambassador. An ambassador is someone who goes somewhere to represent where he came from. An ambassador of the United States to Thailand represents America. And when people see what that ambassador from America does, they are to form from that what an American is. How how well does that work when he's chasing the little Thai girls around? Doesn't work out too well, or whatever. Now, if we're an ambassador for Christ, people are to look at us and see a representation of Christ. How well do we do? Not so hot. We have to work at it every day, every second of the day, so that people can look at us and say, oh, I understand what Christ is like. That makes me shudder to think of how poorly I fulfill it. So, if we're to be a type of Christ, and we're pretty shabby at it, as a human being, then our marriages, because you have a woman and a man who are both pretty shabby at being like Christ, their marriage then is supposed to depict Christ and His bride, and at best, we don't do so well. But that's the great mystery, is that there is a type there, and we're supposed to be working toward being as much like Christ and His bride as we can, just as we're to be as much like Christ as we can be. So when we start talking about types in the Bible and how Moses or Elijah or Elisha is a type, then we're not just talking about the leaders, we're talking about everybody. Because aren't we to be kings and priests with Christ in the millennium? So if he appoints a high priest, let's say, here at the end as a type of Christ, then every one of us that's called is also a type of a high priest. may not hold the same... Physical office is the one at the end time, but you're still in the mode of being a high priest. Now, some of you men have trouble understanding how, how am I to be a woman, a bride. Well, the girls have just about as much problem understanding how they're to be a king and a priest. Shoes on the other foot. doesn't say queens and priests, says kings and priests. He's speaking in general, and we have to understand not the physical gender, we have to think above physical gender. I don't mean we deny it and become gay, don't get me wrong. But we have to deny gender, understanding the bigger purposes of God, and how the relationships are to go together in peace and harmony and happiness. We're the children of God and are to be looked upon as children of God. How perfect are we in that type? Be you boy or girl, a child of God, sons or daughters. Now, we can relate to that gender-wise because it talks about both. But we're still pretty shabby when it comes to being a son of God like Christ was the son of God. I, I hope we can... I hope we can get beyond our gender-based thinking there and understand that the harmony between a husband and a wife is to be the harmony that we have in heaven, the closeness, the intimacy. And though it is not a total representation, it's the closest metaphor that God has to help us see the mystery of God. And that's why the Song of Songs is written in such explicit detail about the relationship and the adoration and the closeness and the respect and the wonders of a human physical relationship in marriage. And he uses that to say, you know, marriage at its best and in its most intimate is what I want to be with you, all of you. I want us to be that close. So maybe we can get at least a little picture of it, you see. So when we're talking about this types, let's understand that he's talking about leaders, but he's also talking about all of us who will be leaders when this comes full circle and the final biggest fulfillment is there. We're here now as a microcosm with leadership that God will provide and those who are stirred to come and be clean and not touch the unclean. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. We're to come here and all of us be His witnesses, His ambassadors that He has got. And then when He returns, He will change us, 144,000. And then the final fulfillment in glory of all these things will occur. So we're going through the motions here to try to be what we ought to be, but we have to understand that Christ is going to put us, before He returns, in the spotlight. We won't be glorified. We'll still be human. We'll be sitting in Zion proclaiming to the world Christ's second coming will be saying, he's already restored the Garden of Eden here, and he's going to restore the whole earth to that. Listen to him. Here's what he has to say. You have leaders that tell you you're going to have a thousand years of new world order and peace under the devil. And that's what they'll proclaim. Because they are Satan worshipers. And they'll do miracles in the name of Satan. Great signs and wonders in the name of Satan, just as Pharaoh's magicians did. So let's understand. You and I are going to be put on the spot, and the world's perception of Christ in the millennium will be formed by what they say you and me do- see you and me doing. Do we think about it in those terms as we go through life? What is just ahead of us as humans is to be an example and a forerunner, a picture of Christ's rule. That's what the world is supposed to get out of you and me. Now that's scary. So let's understand, we can talk about the leaders, but in microcosm, we are all the leaders, we're all the witnesses, we're all the ambassadors for Christ, sent here to be an example to the world, to follow in his footsteps, to think as he thought, to do as he did, and be a witness or an example to the world. And they have to look at you and me and see Christ. Do we begin to understand then why we need to do more prayer and more study? Not just because they told us back in Worldwide that we needed a half hour an hour of this in order to be a true Christian. And it was done more as a matter of rote. You know, uh, that this is the habit. This is what we have to do. So if you were out on some project where you had to be up till 12, 1, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, finishing a job or stopping, making the plumbing work or whatever it might have been, you were still supposed to get up at 6 o'clock and get your Bible study and your prayer in before you went to work. And your head may have fallen in the Bible and you went right back to sleep trying to pray. So it isn't by the clock. It isn't by the clock. Now, if you have to use the clock in order to make yourself do it, um, okay, but that's not the point. The point is, we need to be working at being like Christ and thinking like Christ so much that we don't dare let reading His Word and talking to Him get by us. So, it doesn't have to be by the clock every morning. It doesn't have to be by rote or a habit. It has to be from the heart. Yeah, I, maybe, you know, there are days that I don't pray as much as I do other days. There are days I don't study as much as I do other days. I don't do it by the clock. But I try to do it from the heart recognizing that I have a long way to go to be a total type or ambassador for Christ and that I'm to turn to Him with my whole heart. So, you know, I find that I get answers to my prayers when I'm not just going through a list of people, uh, oh, I need to pray for so-and-so, 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 and so-and-so, Lord, help so-and-so walk better, or whatever. Whatever. I get more answers to my prayers when they are effectual, fervent prayers. When I am crying out to God and truly want an answer to, whether it be uh, healing or something, or whether it be my own lack of righteousness, or my own dealing with a problem in my life, when I truly cry out with all my heart, I tend to get more answers than when I go through a prayer list because there's emotion involved there's heart involved there's desire to be like God involved there is recognition with tears and crying out that I fall so far short of God that there's no comparison and it's times like that that I get more answers and better answers So, do it by the clock as you have to to keep yourself going. But somewhere in here, find the inspiration and the power to have the the kind of relationship with God where when things get rough, you can cry out with all your heart, with all your mind, your body, your spirit, heart, mind, body, and soul. And that's why James said it that way. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So righteousness has to go with it. We have to be serving and obeying God, not just going through a prayer list. We have to be putting the sin and the uncleanness and the world out of our minds and bodies. And in doing that, then we can go to Him in fervent, effectual prayer and get some answers. Now, He says, I don't hear sinners. Now, we all sin and come short of the glory of God, but He means habitual sinners. Those who are living a life of sin (laughs) and are going that way. Now, we're trying to go the other direction, and we're making some progress, but we still have sin. So he also has that other scripture that says, Blessed is the man to whom I do not impute sin. In other words, they're not just going away of sin, they're going the other direction and they still make mistakes, but I'm not going to hold it to their account. Just like he says, if you don't listen to Moses and do what he says, you'll answer for it. So, the fervent, effectual fervent, what does fervent mean? Heated, emotional, powerful. Not just praying, repeating words like the Pharisees and Sadducees did. I mean, you can go and say, okay, I'll repeat the Lord's Prayer. I'm done for the day. That's not fervent, effectual prayer. Even it can become like the Catholic rotisserie, rosary, the round and round But it needs some heat to it. So, A, righteousness. B, then, pray fervently and effectually. It needs to be effective prayer. Just repeating words without emotion is not effective with God. Sorry. What about the marriage? I love you. Yeah, I love you too. Really got it across, didn't you? I love you. See the difference? Now, we can say it in a gentle way. But would we just spit it out? Yeah, I love you too. See you tomorrow. Does that really convince your mate that you're madly, passionately in love with him? No. It's just saying it because you think you ought to or because they said it first, so you guess you better repeat it. And sometimes we don't even go that far. We're told, I love you, and we're saying, yeah, you too. Can't even say it. A lot of people have trouble saying it. I'm not going to get through this sermon today. But we need to get the message, and maybe that's the message for today, is that, the leadership that is there and the leadership we're expecting is important and we'd better be primed and ready and understand and be willing to listen. But at the same time, let's also realize we are the leadership. All of us. Before the world and for the rest of the church who will not listen, if indeed we listen, and for those who come through the Holocaust and are in the Millennium and are ready to listen because we're to be their teachers. We're to be their leaders. So we can discuss the leadership and there will indeed be leadership and we'd better hear it. But at the same time, let's understand that we too are leaders and we'd better hear that message because if we hear and don't do, that doesn't work. Doesn't it say somewhere don't be hearers only but doers of the word and the salvation will come through doing not through hearing he'll judge us by our works by our fruits not by our lip service so it is truly important that we understand that we are to be leaders and kings and priests and queens in the world tomorrow And that right now, in the next few years, we're expected to fulfill that role for the world before we're ever even glorified, while we're still like we are today, only hopefully overcoming and growing and getting a little better day by day so that we're a little better example and a better ambassador to the world. Well, that's the challenge that is before us. So as Pentecost comes, we need to realize that the signs and wonders and all those things that were done on that Pentecost in Acts 2, and I haven't even gotten to that yet, are going to be repeated. And they're going to be repeated in even greater measure than they were in that day. And it isn't going to be those 120 who were sitting there. It's going to be a 10% remnant of the church that all this comes through. So, when we read Acts 2, it's not just history. We're here... At the end time, when the restitution and restoration of all things is at hand. And when God will send one through whose mouth he will restore all things. And the law of God and the judgments of God through the Moses type. So that we can follow through and be true types of Christ. So we need to all be little Jesuses running around down here. Little Emmanuels will fall far short of what He is. But we need to have that picture in our mind because it's not just way off in the millennium, which isn't itself very way off anymore, but it's for real shortly here now as an example to the world and to the church. Because 90% will not believe the leaders that God sends and will not believe us as examples that God sends, as His witnesses. Well, let's stop there for today then.